I was talking to a friend today who said the basic message that we're getting in our world today is fear, fear, fear. And I think that's true. Fear is everywhere. COVID is still with us way longer than anybody thought and has been surging again. Nobody seems to know exactly what to do with it or what's going to come next. Inflation has come back in a way that we haven't seen for decades and nobody seems quite sure what to do with the economy. Some people think they're sure, but it doesn't seem like anybody knows for sure. Uh, the murder rate went up dramatically in 2020 after having gone down for several decades and then went up more in 2021. Nobody's quite sure what to do about that. Division polarization seems to be as bad as ever. Uh, overseas, what's going on in the Ukraine, what's happening in China. And then beyond that is just our personal lives. I was talking to a, another friend this morning who is concerned for his children and concerned for their faith and it raises questions about his faith. and. To be a parent is to live in fear. I think about over these last couple of years, the experience of fear like I had never known in my life where I couldn't sleep through the night, have to figure out when I wake up in the middle of the night, what will I do with my thoughts? My friend, Dr. Rick, tells me we don't do our best thinking at three o'clock in the morning. Thank you, Dr. Rick, for that <laughs> piece of information. Should have paid you for that. What we need, of course, is hope, hope, hope. But how do we find a hope that isn't just wishful thinking. And this is where a thought from Vaclav Havel, who was a poet and a playwright, became the first president of the Czech Republic, lived in a situation imprisoned for many years, far darker than most of us will ever know. Uh, this is what he wrote. Hope is definitely not the same thing as optimism. It is not the conviction that something will turn out well but the certainty that something makes sense, regardless of how it turns out. In short, I think the deepest and most important form of hope, the only one that can keep us above water and urge us to good works, is something we get, as it were, from elsewhere. If we make optimism the foundation of our life, we are forever at the mercy of our circumstances. And the Pollyannas among us will avoid hard truths to try to make things look better than they actually are. The cynics among us will allow hard truths to cause them to become passive or withdrawn or to attack others. We have to have hope, but that hope has to be built on something that is deeper than just optimism. The human spirit was not meant to live at the mercy of circumstances. So where do we find that hope? We are on this journey together through the renovation of the heart, this book by Dallas Willard, learning about uh, what it is that gives hope to the human spirit. Part of what Dallas talks about in that first chapter is every approach to human life that is deeply thoughtful recognizes that there is a problem not just on the outside of us, but inside of us. And if you think about uh, all the different alternative approaches to life, psychoanalysis or the, the need being a, an economic one, the rise of the proletariat, the withering away of the state so that we're not alienated anymore, as Marx would say, or that we just need to become more evolved, 
or that therapy can get us there, or mindfulness can get us there, or if only the left were in charge, or if only the right were in charge. Really, is there some political party? If you were in charge, would that get us there? In the big book of AA, there's a wonderful statement when the writer is talking about how some people would diagnose our problems in terms of immorality, others would talk about character disorder, others would use the language of psychology, some would be troubled if the terms of morality, let alone sin, are used at all, and then this statement, but each reasonable person would agree there is plenty wrong with us. That's a wonderful statement, there is plenty wrong with us. You might just say those words right now for yourself, there's plenty wrong with me, there's plenty wrong with you. And uh, from the time of ancient Greek philosophy, a writer named Pierre Hadot writes about how the ancient Greeks were really deeply concerned about how to change lives, not mostly with just speculative thought. That's always been the issue. What is the solution to the human problem? Now, Dallas says we must place Jesus right alongside all of those thinkers. He says is right at this point, lies the inescapable relevance of Jesus to human life. About 2,000 years ago, he gathered his little group of friends and trainees on the Galilean hillsides and sent them out to teach all the nations. That is, to make students, the word disciple is used sometimes. Dallas likes the words apprentice because it means you come alongside somebody to be with them, to learn from them how to do what they do to make apprentices to him from all ethnic groups. His objective is eventually to bring all human life on earth under the direction of his wisdom, goodness, and power as part of God's eternal plan for the universe. Now, let me ask you, what other human being who's ever lived had an objective like that? I want to bring all of human life on earth under the direction of my wisdom and goodness. Seriously? Napoleon never thought of that. Buddha never said something like that. Only Jesus. We must make no mistake about this. In sending out his trainees, he set afoot a perpetual world revolution, one that is still in process and will continue until God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. In America, in Ukraine, and China, in basements with addicts, with people with whom there is plenty wrong. As this revolution culminates, all the forces of evil known to mankind will be defeated, and the goodness of God will be known, accepted, and joyously conformed to in every aspect of human life. He has chosen to accomplish this with, and in part through, his students. That is you and me. There has never been a movement like this. And as we meet together each day now, we're asking, God, would you make me a part of that movement? Jesus, would you make me one of those trainees? I recognize the need for change from within is my greatest need. And so I sign on to be your apprentice. That is what we're doing. Now, in the footnotes of the first chapter, as Dallas is trying to communicate what a revolution it is that Jesus started and to lay that alongside of other human revolutions... He has a wonderful quote from the historian Will Durant. Durant was himself not a believer. Dallas writes, In the midst of much misunderstanding of Jesus, the historian Will Durant still correctly grasped the role of Jesus as world revolutionary. This is what Durant wrote. He, Jesus, 
is not concerned to attack existing economic or political institutions. The revolution he sought was a far deeper one, without which reforms could only be superficial and transitory. If he could cleanse the human heart of selfish desire, cruelty, and lust, utopia would come of itself and all those institutions that rise out of human greed and violence, and the consequent need for law would disappear. Since this would be the, the profoundest of all revolutions, beside which all others would be mere coup d'etat of class ousting class and exploiting in turn, Christ was, in this spiritual sense, the greatest revolutionist in history. And that is who he was. And that is who he is. Because he alone brings a way of life that can produce change within. And that dimension of my life that is so deep that mostly I do not understand it, but out of which we all live, out of which love and compassion and generosity or fear and greed and envy and hatred emerge. Only Jesus addresses this. Only he has captivated human minds and hearts in such a way that the revolution is still going on 2,000 years later. Dallas writes, uh, God has provided through Jesus a methodical path of recovery. Spiritual formation in Christ is therefore not, Dallas writes, a mysterious, irrational, possibly hysterical, love that because sometimes in churches it is, process. Something that strikes like lightning whenever, wherever it will. Or something that is magically conferred upon us. Spiritual experiences, Paul on the Damascus Road and so on, do not constitute spiritual formation. So what we seek is not primarily a particular kind of experience, chills during worship, or a particular vision during prayer. What we are pursuing is to be formed spiritually from within. So my invitation today, as we're on this road together, is for me, for you, to take that world within, that reality of your thoughts and feelings that tends to lie even beyond your own awareness, and simply bring it to Jesus. Because now we're under the easy yoke. We want to be immersed in His love through our practices and relationships, experiences, so that that love can flow out of us. I had an image this morning I was thinking about my own life and how often when I talk with people, I have this picture of who I want to be. And it's somebody that I'm not. It's somebody who is smarter than I actually am. And I want, I, I admire, I, I'm drawn to people that have great charisma and can speak with power and appear to be impressive and captivating to others. And I had this image of uh, a dull little man trying to put on a show with a theater and stage and lights. And that somehow that has something to tell me about myself and that there is plenty wrong with me. This dull little man who wants to be loved. And so I bring that before my friend Jesus. Jesus, would you love that dull little man and help heal the way that I feel like I have to put on a show? So I don't know what that means for you. I invite you today to just spend a little time reflecting on the inner world inside and bring that to Him 
under the easy yoke and the way of grace. And today, don't be afraid. Hope, hope, hope. See you next time. Thanks for listening. You can join the conversation and more by visiting becomenew.me slash subscribe.